0: guys, welcome back to our teaching in the book of Genesis. Now, the last time we were here in chapter 34, we were dealing with the issue of Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, in her desire to go out to visit the daughters of Shechem. And the thing that we wanted you to remember without rehashing all of that scenario that I did in the covering of chapter 34, but what we need to remember is Shechem is a part of the Canaanites peoples of those Canaanite city states. And in understanding that they are Canaanites, we always need to incorporate into our thinking the idea that these are immoral, godless people. That's so important to remember now. Immoral and godless people, that is, they worship and serve God. Idols, not the true and living God. And oftentimes we will find out in scripture, especially as we move forward in time to the coming of Israel back into the land of Canaan after their captivity in Exodus for those 400 years roundabout time. But what we'll find out is the worship of those idols was always many times carried out with sexual immorality, all kinds of debased sexual activity. So that is incorporated in their worship of idolatry immorality. Okay. But nevertheless, so what happened? Dinah wants to go out to have social interaction with these Canaanites. And the point that I was talking about was how dangerous it was for the Israelite people to do that. Why? Not only because of, okay, okay. Let me just simply say it this way. What happened? She goes out. She meets uh, uh, Shechem, the prince of the town. He forcibly rapes her. And then all of a sudden he wants to marry her. He gets his father to set up some type of contractual arrangement with Jacob, named Israel at this time, but they're still calling him Jacob predominantly. Goes to make the, the marital arrangement with Jacob as well as his sons. We've already talked about how the sons would often participate in the marriage arrangements with their sisters. So he goes to do that, but he goes subtly because even though his son has made the request, Father, get her as a wife for me, the mind of Hamor, his mind is to acquire the, the great resources of Jacob. He wants to get a transference of the wealth. Okay. And so what does he do? He proposes, and here's the danger. He proposes intermarriage between these Canaanites. Remember all that entails with the Canaanites that I just said to you, these Canaanites and Israelites, he proposes an intermarriage, your daughters to our sons, our daughters to your sons. And so Jacob's son, namely Simon and Levi, they, they never have any intention of going through with this proposal, but nevertheless, they deceived Hamor and agreed to the proposal on one condition: that all of the people of Hamor become circumcised. And they knew that on the third day of circumcision after the circumcision, it would be the worst day of pain and inflammation. So they deceived him and they later on, on that third day, went into Shechem the city and killed all the men, not only Hamor and his son Shechem, who actually committed the rape, but every man of Shechem. And they took their wives, their women, that's the proper uses of that term, They took their women, their children, their animals, and their property in, out of the city. And they did all of this, they did all of this uh, wrongly. And that was the point that I was also making in the last video. They did not simply seek justice because if they were seeking justice, they would take out this sort of revenge, so to speak. They would deal with this justly with the man who raped their daughter, who was Shechem and Shechem alone, but they went too far and this simply became an act of vengeance. And we and I also made reference to how Jacob remembered this prophetically. This was remembered in the blessings of the son in Genesis chapter 49. We're not going to rehash that right now, but nevertheless, So because of this thing, Jacob was sorely disappointed in the way Simon and Levi acted in this scenario and said to them, you are causing me problems with my Gentile neighbors. Now they're all going to want to gather together and kill me and I'm only a few in number. And so that's where we basically are left off with this issue. But the principle that I was Hammering then and hammering now because we're going to see issues from that thing flowing even now. But anyway, just stay with me in the continued teachings in the book of Genesis and you'll discover reasons why God did what he did. Even if I I, give you a little insight right now, reasons as to why God sent them into into Egypt. They did not just simply go to Egypt God engineered it so that they would go into Egypt. So stay with me on that. But again, the principle that we're setting forth is it was not good, never good for Israel to intermix with the Canaanites, not, not simply because of ethnic purity or racial purity. That was a part of it because God did want them to be a Holy people, by the idea of holy people, the issue here is a separate people, separate from the Gentiles. But the main idea is God's purpose for calling Abraham in the first place so that he would be a light unto the Gentile nations. What kind of a light? So that the Gentiles would come to know who the true and living God is. Why? Because it was through Abraham and his descendants that God preserved the knowledge of himself. He, he is the true God, the worship of the true God concerning God himself and that there is no other God. God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob indeed is God, not these idols you Canaanites or Gentiles are serving. So they were the function, the purpose that God chose them was to be a light unto the Gentile nations. Now, if they begin to intermix and we'll see that later on as God will, will state uh, uh, verbally in the, in, in the law of Moses, when you begin to intermarry with them, what will end up happening is they will turn your heart from following after God. So not only will it bring judgment cause you're going to get judgment when you denounce God. Okay. But not only that, but they lose their purpose in God's purpose in choosing them election for the first place to become a light. Remember what he said to Abraham in you and that is ultimately in Christ Jesus in your seed, all the families, families means the rest of the world, the Gentile world, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So the function of Abraham and his descendants is to serve as a blessing to the Gentile world. How is that blessing attained? Through the knowledge of God. But if they get intermixed and intermingled with the Gentiles and adopt the gods of the Gentiles or get an improper mixture of who the true God is, they lose their purpose. Okay, enough of that. So now we're in chapter thirty five. So the last time we were dealing with this issue, as we were just talking about here, chapter thirty four is the fearfulness of Jacob his fearfulness that his Gentile, that his Gentile neighbors would come together and attack him in vengeance for what Jacob's sons did to the Shechemites. Okay. And so what happens in chapter 35 is God steps in. Now, as, as I deal with chapter 35, allow me to I read certain parts that are narrative, true enough, but I may take uh, uh, immediate breaks in certain passages because I don't want to skip over uh, some of the principal meanings of those passages. So we may do it slightly a little bit different and I'm hoping that it won't take long. And so I'm hoping I don't start babbling off at the mouth, but I want to keep you on point so you can see the gravity of the text and also, Understand the gravity of everything that I've been hooping and preaching about in 34 concerning Dinah, the the daughter of Jacob. What was the problem going to socialize and interact with these Gentiles? So stay with me on this. okay? let's start 35. Then God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments and let us arise and go up to Bethel. And I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods, which they had, and the rings, which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak, which was near Shechem. Okay. So let me just simply stop there because I want to talk about it. And I pray I don't become too emotional, but here's the point that we've been hammering away at you. So now we see, remember Jacob was afraid that his Gentile neighbors would attack him. Now we see and notice the words that I'm using, guys, the gracious provision of God, the gracious protection of God to Jacob and his whole clan, to Jacob and his whole clan, all that God might, all the reason so that God will preserve his promise, preserve his word. Remember the promise was that he would bless Jacob, that he would make Jacob into a nations and nation, and even plural nations of people and things of that nature. Right? But if Jacob is killed by the Gentiles, what? None of these things would come, come into being. So what does God do? God of his own, according to his own grace, he acts on behalf of his promises to protect Jacob. To keep his promises valid to Jacob, okay. But nevertheless, so he tells him to go to Bethel, and we remember Bethel from chapter 28, when when uh, Jacob was fleeing from the presence of his brothers. Remember when we know all that whole issue of going down into Padan of Haran, down to uh, his uncle Laban's house. But remember, along the way, at a place that was formerly called Luz, Jacob fell asleep on a rock and there he had the great visions of God, as well as the angels of God, ascending and descending on this great staircase. So God told him to return back to this place called Bethel there and to dwell there. And that's the idea. God is providing a place of safety for him and God will provide provision of protection along the way. So in preparing to do so, Jacob, prepares his household by telling them, in other words, as we would simply say it in our day and time, all right, everybody pack up and get your things together. We are leaving Shechem. Okay. And we know that they were in the plains of Shechem on the outside of the city gate. So, but nevertheless, we're leaving Shechem, but notice what Jacob says to them. And here's where I don't want to get too excited guys, but I want to hammer to you. It is so important that we understand the directive of Jacob to his notice what it said to his household family and everybody with those who were with him. Notice the command he gave to them. Put away the foreign gods, which are among you. Purify yourselves and and change your garments. Right then, you're supposed to be going like, what the what? What the what? Where in the world did they pick up all of these foreign gods from? That's the whole point that we've been trying to hammer. They are outside of Shechem. Notice what I said outside. But what did Dinah do? She wants to socially interact with the Canaanites. What did I tell you guys about the Canaanites? Their immorality, their idolatry. You can already see the influence of idolatry that these Canaanites, namely the Shechemites already are having on the family of Jacob. What do you see? Jacob's family who are supposed to be serving. Okay. Jacob has the knowledge of the true God, Yahweh. Jacob understands the worship of the true God, the identity of the true God. But notice, It's already being corrupted. And how has it been corrupted? Through the mingling with these darn Gentiles. And that's the whole point of it. If you do so, it's not so much about the ethnicity, but the point is God chose them to be a light of the true God to the Gentiles. And you can already see, This purpose is already in jeopardy because what do you see now? All of a sudden now they got a bunch of foreign gods and the question you must ask yourself now where we only time somebody we heard with a God was Rachel and we remember Rachel had this household God and we're not going to rehash that go back and do the reading on that and the purpose to why Rachel probably had the God and it was not a good thing but there was not the sense of idol worshiping. There was no sense of idol worshiping with Rachel, but here there is a sense of idol worshiping. Worshiping what? The gods of the Canaanites, the gods of the Shechemites. So already we see this influence has permeated into Jacob's clan. And so he tells them and Jacob, here's the thing. He, in order for him to give the command to put away, he, he was aware. So things are not good here. Things are not good. This dwelling in the Shechem is not good. Jacob should have taken his tail, own to beersheba in the first place to his father Isaac's house. But he didn't. We don't know why he didn't, we just know that he did not. Okay? But y'all remember that main point as we move from this chapter and into chapter 36, the Lord willing, and into chapter 37. Oh my God, somebody help me out all the way up to Joseph. And then you will see why God sent Joseph into Egypt in the first place. But anyway. That's far too mature. uh, 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 uh. We premature in that is way down the line. So let me just go back to the text. Put away the foreign gods, change your clothes. That is the sense of ceremonial purity, ceremonial purity. The idea is cleanse yourselves so that sanctify yourselves so that you may be acceptable to God. Notice where we're going. We're going to Bethel, the house of God okay and then he tells them to rise up let us go to Bethel and he's going to do just what God told him to do he's going to build an altar there remember the the idea of the altar is the sense of claiming that God Yahweh is the God of Jacob and this will be proclaimed set forth publicly so that all can see all right so remember all the ways that light into the gentile things but anyway And then he talks about God who answered him in the time of his distress and God who has been with him. And and we can. Can I say it this way? Because I know I've been doing a little preaching here. So let me preach on just a little bit more. The God who has been good to me is not these stupid idols who cannot see, who cannot hear, who cannot provide, who cannot protect. They have done nothing. So you might as well put them away and let us return to Bethel and give remembrance to the God who has seen, who has protected and who has been good to me. He alone is God. He is the true God. Put those stupid idols away. But nevertheless, bring coming off the preaching stuff. And so they gave to him all of the foreign gods in which they had. And notice it talks about the rings that were in their ears. The reason why they gave the rings that were in their ears to Jacob because stay with the context, stay with the context is because these uh, rings were associated in some way with idolatry. So in some way or another, they marked in some way an association with those foreign gods that uh, Jacob's people had. And that's sick, that's sin and a shame on that. But anyway, and they put them under the oak which was near Shechem. Now, the word for oak here is Elah. And we're going to talk about that too because it's going to be use a word for Elah, translated oak, and uh, alone. And these are two different Hebrew words, but let me just deal with Elah. Elah is normally and, and, and is normally used for something in an idolatrous sense. That's just the bottom line. All right. Something in the worship of idols. So he buried these idolatrous articles, articles associated with idolatry. Right. As well as what? They're foreign gods under this tree that is somehow associated with idolatry. So it is very possible. Now we don't know for certain, but it's very possible that this tree was somewhat used in an idolatrous fashion in the same, in a similar way, like the Oaks of Mamre to which we don't have time to get into right now. But the point is all of this is associated with idolatry. And so therefore Jacob left it right there. Uh, leaving the idolatry and idolatrous things behind and returning to the house of God. Okay. To Bethel, that Bethel is the meaning house of God, literal meaning. All right. And so verse number five, as they journeyed there, there was great terror upon the cities which were around them and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to lose that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him, he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now, Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and she was buried below Bethel under the oak. It was named Alun Bakuth. OK, so now Jacob begins to flee. He's leaving Shechem. And remember the, the worry of Jacob. And this shows you the beauty, the grace of God. Why we should always be thankful for God, thankful to God, because notice the very context of what we just left was dealing with the fact that Jacob's household was starting to indulge in idolatry. You see that? But nevertheless, as he journeyed along the way, God put a supernatural fear, upon the Gentile city-states around them so that they would not pursue Jacob. Remember, Jacob's whole fear was, when they hear about what Levi and Simon did in killing all of these Shechemites, they're gonna band together and they're gonna kill me and all my people for revenge on that, okay? But notice, the fear of God was upon these Gentiles and so for that reason, this supernatural fear that God puts upon their heart, They did not even try to pursue him. God was protecting Jacob and his people undeservedly, undeservedly. He could have said, since, since you have turned to these idols and all of these things, let them protect you. Those idols that can't see here and do nothing else. Let them protect you since you're turning away from me. But God in his mercy and in his grace, he did not. So, but let me continue. I don't want to preach any further. So he journeyed on until he finally got to Bethel. Remember, they give the ancient name reference of that place, Luz new name that Jacob gave it Bethel. Remember it means house of God. And Jacob did what the Lord commanded him. He set up the altar of worship and we already dealt with all of that issue concerning the altar where Jacob himself would worship publicly, publicly setting up this altar is an altar to the God of Jacob amongst the Gentiles and all of their idolatry. But nevertheless, he set that up in Bethel and he called the name El Bethel. That means God of the house of God. So again, once again, he commemorates the place with a name there because God himself met Jacob at this particular place and we're gonna see it again. Just like he met Jacob at first in the vision of a dream. Here we will have a theophany of God in a particular way. He will meet Jacob seemingly like he did in Peniel face to face. OK, but nevertheless, he, met, he built the altar there. He named the place House of God, God of the House of God, the place of worship, God of the House of God. It is already called Bethel. And it also makes the, gives us the information that the nurse of Rebecca, Deborah, who had somehow joined Jacob. We don't know when and we don't know where, but somehow, somewhere, she had joined Jacob, had died, and they buried her under an oak. Remember I told you guys about the word oak here? Now here, it is a different word. Notice here, the oak where she was buried is called Alon Bakuth. Alon is the word that is used for simply an oak tree, okay? Remember I told you earlier that a, a lock, a law was the word that was used for this other oak tree associated with idolatrous worship. And I hope I got those names pronunciation correctly, okay? I, I read Hebrew better than I can speak it. <laughs> anyway, so that's the idea. Along Bakuth, which literally is translated Oh, I'm sorry, oak of weeping. So they buried her at this particular tree and they called this tree by name of weeping, the oak of weeping. And there Deborah was buried. And we're going to see throughout this chapter three deaths that will be talked about. And this is the very first death. The next death that we will see will be the death of Rachel herself. But anyway, let's go on. Then God appeared to Jacob again, verse number nine, when he came from Padan Aram and he blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob. Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you and I will give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God has spoken with him, Bethel. Okay. Now this is mostly narrative and it's somewhat of a repetition of what occurred earlier. As we told you, told you guys about in chapter 28. And if you've been following me in these teachings consecutively, then you also remember them. But nevertheless, so notice it says in verse number nine, that God appeared to Jacob again. So this is not an appearance in a vision. It doesn't say that state that in the text, this is very similar to the appearance of God. When Jacob himself wrestled with God, right when he was getting ready to cross the Ford of the Jabbok we've dealt with that. Okay. But it is an appearance physical theophany? And we don't want to get into all of the issues concerning with that. When we talk about the pre incarnate Christ Christ in the flesh, Jesus taking flesh as God, he has the power to do so the ability to do so before being born through the agency of the womb of Mary. So he is able to manifest himself in flesh. All right. So we call this a theophany and this is Jesus. Why do we say it's Jesus? As the scripture says through the gospel of John, no man has seen God, And the clear reference is God, the father at any time at any time old Testament new to at any time, no man has ever seen God. So therefore it must be Christ personified. Okay. But anyway, so what does he do? He, tell, he, he tells him once again that his name is Jacob. And it seems that he may be referring to the, the, the consistency in the past, even after God changed his name in wrestling. That's when he first changed his name. He, he didn't kind of grasp on to it as he should. That's what it seems like in the text. So he emphasizes once again. So we see. Emphasis on the name no longer being Jacob because there is a memory of the name deceiver, supplanter, uh, uh, conniver. That's the idea. But he gave him the name Israel, one who contends and one who has victory. And so he gives him this new name that will be to Jacob as well as a name that will be applied to the descendants of Jacob. We know we call it simply the nation of Israel. But anyway, and so he changes his name and then he introduces himself to Jacob by a different type of a name and not so much as a name, but a an address or an identity. He calls himself El Shaddai. El Shaddai. I am God almighty. I am almighty God. So that speaks of the power of God. Remember, What was in the heart of Jacob? Fear, fear, fear of these Gentiles attacking me, fear of something happening to me. And notice as God is reiterating and reestablishing this promise, remember the promise of Abraham and that's what is taking place here. As God is reiterating this promise, he is saying, I am almighty God and everything that I say, I'm able to perform it. I'm able to do it. So therefore I will protect you. I will keep you for my word's sake and I won't leave you and I won't depart from you until I have done what I had promised. Remember, we also saw that too in chapter 28. But anyway, God Almighty and certain uh, uh, points of the Abrahamic covenant, the fruitful and multiply and the nations coming from him, as well as the promise that he also made to uh, Abraham in chapter 17 of Genesis, Kings shall also come. So not only will a great company of people, but notable and noble people, kings would come from Jacob. And then he reiterates again the promise of the land, that the land that I gave unto whom Abraham, your grandfather, and Isaac, your father. I also give you this same promise. I give you the land as well to you as well as your descendants. And so then God left up and notice wherever he was, and I can imagine that, but God ascended up from the place that he was talking to Jacob. And there, Jacob, once again, whenever we have the appearance, and you can imagine that, can you imagine how you would act? And this will not happen. But nevertheless, if God just simply appeared to you and all of these things like that, you would say, Wow, what an experience. And so what does Jacob do? He once again memorialized the place. He set up what? He set up a place, the stone, pillar of stone, and, and, and you just see the pillar of stones a number of times in Old Testament scripture to memorialize a place or an event, notably an event associated with a particular place. Stones there. He placed all and he poured libation. That is the what it means by the drink offering. The act of it is it is basically a ceremonial act of remembrance involving a sense of worship. That's the idea there. That's the idea there. OK, why? Because God had just spoken to him once again and remunerated those what Abrahamic promises that he made earlier in chapter 28. And so Jacob Name the place once again. We see the emphasis Bethel because of what is taking place here, the house of God. And because of these things happening with Jacob, this is why we see in the future history, later on in the history of Israel, Bethel would become one of the major sites of worship for God. Okay? Okay, but continuing on, then, verse number 16. They journeyed from Bethel, and when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. When she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. It came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him ben oni But his father named him, called him Benjamin, Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. Jacob set up a pillar over her grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. It came about. While Israel was dwelling in, the, in that land, that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Okay, so now let's deal with that section. So they're continuing on in their journey in Bethel, and what happens? Rachel is pregnant, and she comes, she's she's to turn, it's time for her to have the baby, but her labor is severe to such an agree. That it brought forth her death. So while Rachel is struggling to give birth to this child, her nursemaid, that the, the one to help, help her to give birth to the child, tries to comfort her because by telling her, Okay, it'll be alright, you have a son who is to be named. But this did not give Rachel much comfort because she named him Benoini. Which literally means son of my sorrow, son of my sorrow. And you can understand why she would call him son of her sorrow. Why? Because in bringing forth this son, he brought forth her death. Okay. But nevertheless, it is a fulfillment. The birth of Benjamin is a fulfillment Of the earlier prayer and hope of Rachel when she had Joseph. Remember when she had Joseph, she said, and may Yahweh, may the Lord add to me another son. That's the idea. So now God has been gracious and faithful to Rachel to give her another son, even though this son is costing her her life. So but because of this costing her life, she calls him son of her sorrow, but, uh, Israel, Jacob, Israel who understands what is in the meaning of a name? Because remember this was him. God would ask Israel himself, Jacob, what is your name? Throwing into his face, forcing him to remember to think upon deceiver, supplanter conniver. That's my name. And God says, no, that was your name. You have a new name, one who contends and prevails. Jacob understood what was in a name. And so clearly the text is indicating for us, Jacob did not want his son to bear such a negative name like Jacob himself once did. So what did Jacob do instead of giving him a name of such with, with such negativity, son of my sorrow, he gave him a more positive name, son of my right hand. And that's the meaning of Benjamin, son of my right hand, the idea, son of power, son of grace, son of strength. And so he gave him a very, positive name and with that Rachel died and when Rachel died we also see here and I do believe I'm correct this is the first mention of what can be understood in our day as a tombstone as a tombstone so Jacob here sets up a sort of memorial something to indicate the place of Rachel's burial she died in Ephrath which was once, which is the ancient name, ancient name for Bethlehem. So in their journey towards that, he set up this memorial stone under the tree to indicate this is where Rachel had died and was buried. Okay, this is where Rachel was buried. And I believe this is the first indication of what we would call in our modern times. Now, later on, we know it's before just in, in the early modern times, but what we come to understand as a tombstone, okay, a memorial as well as identification for a place of burial. But anyway, and so then it ends as they were journeying on unto this place called the tower of Edar. They still on their way to try to settle towards, towards Bethel, Bethlehem. I'm sorry. An incident took place. Reuben, who is the eldest son of Leah and Jacob, that's Jacob's oldest son. His oldest son comes from his wife, Leah, his first wife. Okay. And y'all remember all of that. Reuben slept with Jacob's concubine. Now remember, and we don't have time to hash it all, but remember, Jacob married two sisters, Leah, the oldest, Rachel, the youngest. They got into a baby making contest. Okay. And so what Leah and Rachel did was they gave their maidservants to Jacob so that they could produce children by them. Leah's maidservant was Zilpah and Rachel's maidservant was Bilhah. Okay. And as being given to as maid servants, their maidservants to Jacob to have children, they became Jacob's concubine. And by being Jacob's concubine, they were basically not, they did not have the status of a wife, okay? That was reserved unto Leah and Rachel. They had full status and privileges of the wife. These had lesser statuses, lesser privileges, but nevertheless, they were as his wives, making them, off limits to anybody. You can't touch them. They were asked if they were Jacob's wives. Okay, so Reuben knew this, but nevertheless, through some lustful reason, Reuben has sex with Bilhah, his father's concubine, which was a no-no. Now, and let me make one other point before I get into the hooping. And it said Jacob heard of this. Once again, I want to draw your attention. Back in chapter thirty-four. When Dinah was raped, Jacob heard of it, but he didn't say anything quickly about it. Here we see again, a very egregious thing has taken place. His own son had sex with his concubine and he still, you don't hear him saying much about it. So we don't want to rail off too much on Jacob. It seems to be his personality trait that when things really bad happens, Jacob does not explode. He doesn't act overly emotional. He remembers it. He doesn't like it and appreciate it, but he just seems to be very reserved in how he responds. Okay, all right. Not only that, not only that. So let me also make this comment: when we get into chapter forty-nine and Jacob gives the prophetic blessings to his sons, Reuben, remember Reuben is his firstborn, firstborn son. All right, and to the firstborn son is to go the right of birthright. All right, the issue of birthright. That's, that's how it's supposed to work. But because of Reuben's sin here, Reuben will be passed over for the birthright. So the birthright will not be given to his firstborn Reuben. The birthright will be given to the firstborn of Rachel. Remember that was his second wife. So her firstborn son by Jacob is Joseph and therefore Because of Reuben's sin and his uncontrolled immorality, the birthright, he loses his birthright and it will be given to Joseph. All right. But that's even so later on in the future, like I just told you, chapter forty nine. But now let me hammer a point again to you. It is a sublime point. It's subliminal. It's almost working underneath the text. But you have to see it, guys, in context of the whole. So I want to say it without hooping and preaching to you again, but if I have to hoop and preach to you again for you to get it, I will do so go all the way back to again, chapter 34 with Dinah wanting to go and intermingle with the Gentiles. Notice what did I tell you about the Canaanites, Shechemites, immoral, godless people, profane people, idolatrous people. Where do you think, Reuben learned this instance. He learned it from the Canaanites. Okay, again, and I don't have time to hammer it or belabor it, guys, even into the future. We will remember when the Israelites came back into the land of Egypt, I'm sorry, came out of the land of Egypt, preparing to come into the land of Canaan. Once again, this is the very land where Jacob is Israel right now, where he is right now. What did God say Leviticus chapters 18 as well as chapter 20? God enumerated some of the things that Israel was not to do. And the point was do not follow in the behavior of the Canaanites. And what were some of those behaviors where a man would lay down with his father's wife. In other words, this was one of the immoral practices of the Canaanites. So what's the point again? Can you not see, can you not see how easily and quickly Jacob's people were influenced by the Canaanites? Not only remember again, what did he tell him at the beginning of the chapter? Put away the foreign gods. Not only in the foreign gods, they were influenced, but also in their immoral behavior and who behaved in such an immoral way. The firstborn son of Jacob, the firstborn son acting in this awful manner. So again, and I don't want to hoop to the side of that, but let me say this. We thus also must be careful that though we are in the world, I'm talking about saints today, us today. We are not of the world. There is a degree of sanctification, a degree of separation that God wants us to have apart from this world. We are not of the world. We don't believe what the world believe. We don't do what the world does. We are fundamentally different. And that was, that's what makes us Christians. And we should never forget that. Just like God was saying to Jacob and his people, this is what make you my elect people. Don't be like the Canaanites. And if I had to preach today, I'd tell all of y'all Don't be like the Canaanites in this world with the homosexuality, with the transgenderism, with all of this foolishness, with the free sex and and all of that. There is a word of God that makes you holy unto God. And the principle remains the same even for this day as God said to them, be ye holy as the Lord your God himself is holy. All right, enough preaching. Back to the text. Now, there were 12 sons of Jacob. Verse number 23. Sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, Gad, and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre of Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, an old man of ripe age and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. All right. So now the chapter ends in rehearsing. Now that the family of Jacob is set, that is his sons. He will have no more sons after this. The Bible names the sons who have, who will become the heads of the tribes of Israel. And I'm speaking in a generic sense. These are the heads. All right. And it names them in order of their births from with respect to wives. notice Leah, the first wife and her sons in order of their births by Leah or through Leah. And then the second wife, Rachel, those two sons in order of their births, And then it deals with the handmaids, that is the concubines, all right? And the order and the names of their sons and the order through their births, okay? So now, now, it's not giving them all who born, who born here. First of all, the wives, Leah in order, Rachel in order, all right? Then uh, uh, the concubines and in order, okay? It's not putting them in order. He, then he, then he, then he. First, it deals with the wives. Him, then him, then him, then him, then the second wife, him to him, and him. And then it deals with the conquered mind, him, then him, then him, then him, him. In that order, like that. Wise take the preeminence. Okay. So then after dealing with that, so so it looks back on it, flashes on that, is now set. It moves on to Jacob further journeying. So he finally arrives at his father, Isaac, in a place called Kiriath Arba. And this is a little way basically on the outskirts. It's still within the the regions of Beersheba. He finally gets to his father, uh, Isaac there. Okay. And then, then it tells us the age of Isaac. When he died, Isaac lived a good old age. Isaac outlived Abraham about five years. I think Abraham was what? 175 years old when he died. Isaac was 180 years when he died. Isaac died, as the scripture says, as a good old, right age. And then the last picture that it gives is he was, it said he was gathered to his people. Now, I don't want to get into all of that, but it's just simply an idiom for he was, he died and he was buried. But there is much more that can be said about that. But this is not the time. But nevertheless, he died. And the final picture that it gives is Esau and Jacob, it uses Jacob's name as Jacob because it's referring to him again as the son of Isaac before the name change. And it also gives the reference as the brother of Esau. OK, but nevertheless, the final picture is Esau and Esau and Jacob coming together and burying their father. It gives a picture of peace. So the point that I want to stress here is from the moment that es- that Jacob who is Israel, came back into the land once again from the moment he returned. Remember, he was afraid of Esau. But nevertheless, he met Esau by God's grace and God's working on Esau's heart. He met Esau in peace. And again, in the second time that we see him coming together with his brother, it is in peace. So the relationship between Jacob and Esau by all scriptural appearances, seems to remain that these brothers died at peace with one another even though their descendants will be contrary with one another they are going to have a lot of grievances one another but they themselves had peace when they died all right guys thanks for joining me on that one and please remember some of the things that i talked about as we talked in the the principles of being separate from the world but anyway Join me next time as we get into chapter 36 and the scriptures begin to talk about Esau and his descendants. And even though we're going to get into a lot of names, there is still a beautiful picture that God paints concerning Esau, the non-elect. All right, guys, God bless you. See you next time.